We've all been following the horrors and atrocities in Ukraine. This just past week, a missile killed 50 and injured 100 at a Ukraine state train station. Um, and, you know, President Zelensky has accused Russia of committing war crimes, and the charge has been echoed by officials from the United States and other countries. And the question is, what constitutes a war crime? How can perpetrators be held accountable? Can Putin be held responsible for, for what happens? And with us to break down this complicated matter is somebody who is really one of the top experts Experts in the nation on the issue, Professor Michael Scharf. He's the co-dean of the Case Western Reserve University Law School, and he's the managing director of the Public International Law and Policy Group, a Nobel Peace Prize nominated nonprofit. He's written uh, 20 books, four of which have won National Book uh, of the Year honors. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Professor Scharf. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's good to be on. Tell me, uh, let's let's just take this really simply. Let's define some, uh, let's do some definitions of the words and the terms we've been hearing, war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes of aggression, and genocide. Can you tell our listeners generally what these terms mean? Sure. We'll go right through them. The first one is war crimes, and those are violations of the Geneva Convention. Those are the treaties that govern the laws of war. And basically, the war crimes in the Geneva Conventions are attacks against civilians, attacks against POWs once they've surrendered and they're no longer armed, um, attacks against civilian objects that are not necessary to the fighting of the war. And all of these things can be prosecuted before an international tribunal. And the International Criminal Court is a tribunal with jurisdiction over war crimes. Then there's something called crime against humanity. These were defined originally at the Nuremberg Tribunal following World War II, and the basic definition are systematic and widespread attacks against the civilian population. Unlike war crimes, crimes against humanity can be committed during peacetime or during wartime. Then you've got the crime of genocide, sometimes called the crime of all crimes. This also came out of the Nuremberg Tribunal. There is an international treaty called the Genocide Convention that the United States and many other countries are party to. And it says that when you attack a certain kind of population, which are defined as national groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, racial groups, if you attack them with the intent to destroy them in whole or substantial part, and you do this by either killing them or sterilizing them, like what happened during World War II, or even deporting them in order to change the ethnic makeup of a country. That's the crime of genocide, and that also can be prosecuted by the International Criminal Court. And then there's a final crime called the crime of aggression or waging an aggressive war. And that was something that was prosecuted at Nuremberg. The Nazis were convicted of this crime because they had attacked all kinds of innocent countries throughout Europe. They used subterfuge, promising to be allies and friends, and then did late night blitzkrieg attacks. And this is, in fact, what people are saying happened in the Ukraine. It is an attack by one country of another country that's not authorized by the U.N. Security Council, and it's not in self-defense. 
And that crime is not covered by the basic jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. There's an amendment to the court statute, and only a few countries, about 22 of them, have bought into the amendment. And so it can only prosecute that crime in very few countries, not including Ukraine. So going through those four crimes, war crimes, let's just take them one by one. From what you have seen, again, we don't know everything, but we're watching what's being reported in the media. It's pretty clear that you that uh, Russia is guilty of war crimes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's not just what's reported in the media. This is really the first time in history that you have a war that is being so well documented in real time. And so what you're seeing are ordinary people on the street with their cell phone videos taking videos. And then you add to that things like satellite imagery, where countries like the United States are sharing this intelligence that shows before and after photos, showing the destruction of cities, of civilian objects, uh, the killing of individuals. And then you have all kinds of testimony already. Different human rights groups and uh, investigators from many countries are talking to individuals on Zoom and on the phone, and they're getting testimony. And in fact, the problem with this particular uh, situation is that there is such a mountain of evidence that it's going to take a long time to sift through it and, and then to bring about indictments. And because of that, I was actually just at breakfast a couple of days ago with the former chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Fatou Bensouda, and she said this is going to be one of the biggest challenges. But in the Sudan crisis, they had a similar challenge. And what they did is countries from all over the world seconded or loaned individuals who were war crimes experts to the court. And so the court had temporarily swelled with these with these temporary on loan uh, experts who are sifting through all the evidence. And that's what's going to have to happen in the next couple of weeks. Is it, is it true? And I think I read this somewhere that there that some of these uh, tribunals are, or organizations are actually they have websites where people can actually post uh, their experiences and what they've seen, what they've experienced. Uh, so not only is it in person and, and by, by satellite, but people are actually posting online. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And one of the most interesting examples is the International Bar Association, which is based in London. It has an app called Eyewitness to Atrocity. And they spread this app around. So many, many people have downloaded it. What it does is when you make a video on your cell phone, you can push a button and it uploads to the cloud where they have access to it. And it tags it with metadata, which means that you can tell what time the video was taken geographically where it was taken, who took it, or you can decide not to uh, use your identity. If you want to protect your identity, you have that option. But this is therefore called self-authenticating, which means a court of law can use it without somebody coming in and saying, I took that video and there was a chain of custody and it is authentic. Now, through this um, app, the courts can actually use it. And and that's just one example of, of how we're seeing technology being used to document these war crimes. Very interested. We're here uh, talking with Professor Michael Scharf, who's the co-dean at the Case Western Reserve University Law School. We're talking about war crimes, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about what would need to be done to bring some of the perpetrators here to justice. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. We're talking about war crimes with Professor Michael Scharf who's an expert on this issue. 
Uh, Professor Scharf, let's talk a little bit about who can be prosecuted for war crimes. Uh, is a soldier who commits uh, some sort of, um, uh, you know, atrocity, uh, is, say, is it a, a, a possible defense for him to say, well, you know, I was taking orders from above. Is that a defense to, uh, to a war crime? So ever since the Nuremberg Tribunal following World War II, the obedience to orders defense is very limited. So basically, if you're ordered to take an action that is manifestly unlawful, like attacking a civilian place, uh, a hospital, uh, a school full of children, uh, or killing um, unarmed soldiers uh, that have surrendered, or old ladies, or young children, all of those things are per se war crimes, whether or not you are following orders or not. In fact, the soldier has a duty to disobey a clearly unlawful order of such type. So what are the difficulties with with prosecuting Putin? I, I assume that Putin would have to be taken from Russia and brought to a tribunal for uh, for a trial. And, and, and is it fair to say he can't be uh, tried in absentia? That's correct. The International Criminal Court does not have in absentia trials. So how would he so, yes. have to be brought there? Uh, I mean, how could you envision this right. possibly happening? All right. So... The court does not have a constabulary, and the UN doesn't have or a coalition of um, government military that are going to go in to Moscow and kidnap him and bring him out. So it is unlikely in the short run that he's going to be brought to The Hague and prosecuted. But what will happen is this. In a couple of months, there will be indictments, and the indictments will very clearly indicate that the International Criminal Court has confirmed that these charges against Putin are based on substantial evidence. And once you're indicted by an international court, it makes it very hard to lead your country. For one thing, you become a prisoner in your own territory. He can't go to the G7 or other international conferences because he would be arrested upon entering another country's territory. And um, the sanctions will be strengthened because the rest of the world will now have a moral reason to keep the pressure on um, Russia. And they will put pressure on him and his people to surrender him to The Hague. And then it just becomes difficult to run your own country when you're known as an indicted war criminal. You become a little bit of a joke. (laughs) And so we've seen this happen in other countries. Slobodan Milosevic got indicted by the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal set up by the U.N. And soon after that, he lost popularity, he fell from power, and ultimately he was surrendered to the Hague. Uh, Charles Taylor, the president of Liberia, he got indicted by the Special Court for Sierra Leone, another international tribunal, which was a forerunner of the new International Criminal Court. And when he fell from power, ultimately he was surrendered uh, for prosecution by that tribunal. And then al-Bashir, the president of the Sudan, was indicted by the current International Criminal Court for genocide in Darfur. And he tried to test the system. He would pop around the world visiting other countries. And because his country has so much oil, at first they weren't arresting him. But ultimately, his population grew unhappy with him. He fell from power. He's under arrest. And there are currently um, negotiations and procedures that get him to the Hague. So he, too, will end up facing international justice. So I like to say international criminal justice is 
patient and persistent. Sometimes it takes a long time, but it is very effective even to just have an indictment. And it does erode the possibility that Putin will be an effective leader. And that's good to hear because what I've been hearing is that they're never going to prosecute him because they're never going to bring him outside the country. But it's good to hear that these that there's a history and a precedent for the indictments, the mere indictments, uh, harming harming that leader's uh, authority. And what are the possible punishments? Is there an international death penalty? I know in Nuremberg uh, there were Nazis who were hanged for their crimes. Is that still uh, a penalty that that Putin could face? Well, so the International Criminal Court was negotiated by all the countries in the world, including the the European countries and others that had gotten rid of the death penalty. And in order to get a common denominator of support, they did do away with the death penalty. So the, the longest you can get is a life sentence. Um, and most of the people who have committed the worst crimes so far have gotten between 25 and 30 years. Okay. And... Um Let's just quick question. Uh, The U.S. is not a member of the International Criminal Court. Am I right about that? That's correct. Neither is Russia. But the thing about this court is it has jurisdiction over crimes that are committed in the territory of a member of the court. And not only that, but the Ukraine in 2014 sent a official communication to the court accepting its jurisdiction. And so technically it's not a party to the court, but it is one of the places that if you commit war crimes, the court has jurisdiction. This also happened to the United States involving Afghanistan. Um, Because Afghanistan is a party to the ICC and we had troops in Afghanistan, the ICC started an investigation against the United States that made us very unhappy, but we recognized that the court could do that. We have like two minutes, and I'm very fascinated by your uh, involvement in the prosecution of genocide in Cambodia. I just visited that beautiful country and really got immersed in the whole issue of what happened there with in the 1970s during Pol Pot's brutal regime. If you've seen the killing fields, you've seen that the horror of the genocide that happened there, over two million people believed to have died. Um, and there were finally some convictions of two leaders of the Khmer Rouge. Can you tell our listeners just in a very quick minute what how... What was your involvement and how how did this uh, prosecution proceed? So I took a sabbatical and was the special assistant to the prosecutor of the tribunal. And I helped him, especially in one of the the major questions about um, a theory of liability called joint enterprise liability, which is actually what would probably be used against President Putin. So he's going to be in trouble for, you know, the plan that is that is being implemented in the Ukraine and for ordering it, but also for being part of a joint criminal enterprise. And that's something that was developed at the Cambodia Tribunal. They did prosecute the, the former leaders of the Khmer Rouge. Pol Pot had long died, but there were other surviving members. They were prosecuted, and it was historically important for the people in Cambodia to see that what these people had done um, was horrible and that they were brought to justice. Even decades later, I mean, literally yeah. four decades later. Uh, is there just any possibility that you might get brought into this prosecution, investigation and prosecution uh, for the Ukraine uh, atrocities? 
Well, I'll tell you, on Valentine's Day of this year, I was asked to do an amicus argument before the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Court in its first case involving the insanity defense. And so one of the things I do is I write amicus briefs, which are friends of the court briefs. They help the court on novel issues that have never been before prosecuted. And so I would very much be interested in in supporting the prosecution of the Russian perpetrators um, in, in this way. Thank you so much for joining us. That was really a great breakdown of some very complicated issues. Professor Michael Scharf, co-dean of the Case Western Reserve University Law School. Keep up the good work, and I appreciate you taking time on your Sunday. Thank you, Karen.